Hi, I'm Gianna Volpe, and thank you for listening to The Heart of the East End on WLIWFM, the show where we get to the heart of any matter at hand with folks from all walks of life on Long Island's only local NPR radio station. We stream online at WLIW.org radio and welcome your comments, questions, and collaborations of all kinds on The Heart of the East End. Live from the WLIWFM studio in Southampton, New York, I'm Gianna Volpe with local news on Long Island's only NPR radio station. Colleges and universities are welcoming students back for fall semester. COVID-19 protocols more relaxed than at any time since the pandemic closed campuses in March 2020. Carol Polsky reports on Newsday.com that Long Island colleges and universities, with few exceptions, are relaxing COVID guidelines for the fall semester, including optional indoor masking, shorter isolation periods for students infected with the virus, and masking instead of quarantine for students exposed to the the virus. CDC has cited availability for vaccinations and treatments to justify easing protocols, but still recommends indoor masking in areas with high transmission rates, such as Long Island. Higher education institutions have strengthened tutoring and mental health services in response to the impacts of the pandemic and growing demand. In other school news, at a special meeting this past Monday, the Tuckahoe School Board of Education unanimously approved hiring retired Southampton Town Police Officer Eric Plum as an armed school guard for the upcoming school year. Kaylin Riley reports on 27East.com that the district had planned on hiring Plum to serve as a school guard, but held the special town hall-style meeting to take the community's temperature on the question of whether or not Plum would be armed with a gun in his capacity as school guard. Whether or not school security guards should be armed has been a hotly debated topic across the country in recent years, particularly in the wake of, uh, the wake of mass school shootings. But there was no debate in the Tuckahoe School Cafeteria on Monday night at a meeting that had much higher attendance than usual. Parents and teachers who were in attendance expe- expressed overwhelming support for hiring Plum as an armed guard. Many of them referenced an incident that occurred on June 10, uh, less than three weeks after the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, when the school was hosting its outdoor field day festivities. There was a report that later turned out to be inaccurate of a dispute between two individuals in close proximity to the Tuckahoe School in which one person was reportedly brandishing a gun. The school locked down. The incident was over in minutes, with the police quickly arriving to tell them there was no threat and they were clear to go back outside. But according to accounts shared by some parents at the meeting on Monday night, it was a frightening experience that left an impression. Plum was on hand at Monday's meeting and spoke to the group of parents, sharing his expertise in the law enforcement field and in firearms training. Southampton Town Police Lieutenant Sue Ralph was also on hand to speak in support of Plum. He is an East Quag resident who has served as a school resource officer for several districts, including Tuckahoe, and his experience in that department in particular is part of the reason why uh, Tuckahoe Superintendent Len Skujevic said he was eager to hire him and open to the idea of having him armed while on the job. In the village, unbearable, that's the word Southampton Village Mayor Jesse Warren used to describe the traffic situation for those who work or reside in the village right now. He says that addressing that problem is one of his top priorities, and to that end, he's been working with officials from Southampton Town, Suffolk County, and New York State on potential solutions. 
Keelan Riley reports on 27East.com that Mayor Warren and other local leaders are tackling the problem with a com- combination of short and long-term approaches. Warren said that he, Southampton Town Supervisor Jay Schneiderman, and Southampton Town Highway Superintendent Charlie McArdle all agree that there are more cars on the road than the roads can handle during rush hour and that moving cars uh, more quickly through certain areas of the town and village, such as Montauk Highway and Hill Street, as well as County Road 39, is crucial. One problem area primed for improvement is the traffic light on Montauk Highway at St. Andrews Road, which Warren said stays red for too long for east-west traffic during rush hour. He said he has reached out to the State Department of Transportation, which controls that light in the hope of setting off a process that would allow that light to stay green for longer. Warren said he and village officials have also been working on trying to alleviate the issues of cars speeding down side streets and residential areas in the village in an attempt to avoid traffic. A new state law that will now allow local municipalities to institute a global 25-mile-per-hour speed limit will help the village lower the limit on many side streets from 30 to 25 miles per hour, which should help address the issue, Warren said. A traffic study the village commissioned some time ago related to these issues is about 90 percent complete, Warren said, meaning a public hearing on the matter is imminent. Warren said he wanted to make it clear that he and village officials recognize the traffic woes that have been plaguing residents and other visitors to the village of Southampton. And finally, when New York State awarded the first of 10 licenses to grow and sell medical marijuana in 2015, the winning bidders rejoiced at the opportunity to control a lucrative untapped market as they knew that greater spoils lay ahead. Grace Ashford reports in the New York Times that if New York were to legalize recreational cannabis, medical marijuana companies would be well positioned to dominate the market, much as they have in states like Illinois and Arizona. But New York State took a different approach promising to put those who had been harmed by the war on drugs first in line for retail licenses with the application process opening today. That approach has left the 10 medical marijuana licensees and those companies with an interest in their business, nearly all of which are large multi-state operators, uh, scrambling. Some have donated to Governor Kathy Hochul's campaign, and nearly all have hired lobbyists, spending more than $2 million this year in the hopes that they can make the best of what some have projected to be a $6 billion market. The focus of their campaign is a fee required by the state's cannabis law that operators must pay in order to sell marijuana outside the medical program. Early discussions have touched on a potential fee of $20 million per operator. Unsurprisingly, the medical marijuana industry wants to lower that figure. One industry-funded report even went so far as to project significant tax losses for the state if medical operators were held back. But New York State lawmakers held firm, insisting that social equity candidates, defined as women, minorities, distressed farmers, veterans, and those affected by the war on drugs, should be given a real chance to prosper. The industry won a key provision, however, in exchange for a fee. Each of the 10 medical operators would be allowed to open three recreational dispensaries, making them the only vertically integrated players in New York's marketplace. The fee would then be used to seed the business of social equity candidates. Reading the weather in Carl Place, in honor of our first guest this morning, celebrity chef Tom Shondell, as that is his hometown. Looking like a sunny Thursday with a high near 90 degrees. Light and variable wind becoming north around five, five miles per hour. This morning tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 72. 
South wind three to seven miles per hour right now. It's 77 degrees. I've got Dr. John leading us off this morning. Marty Robbins and Billy Joel on deck. Lumineers and Talking Heads after that. I'm Gianna Volpe, and you're listening to the weekday morning and midnight show here on Long Island's only NPR radio station that plays music from all decades and genres and speaks to folks from all walks of life, all because of you, the listener supported, a supporter of WLIWFM and PR Radio. She's a rich and a poor.
Big Gap from Dr. John's tribal record. A lot of big songs uh, leading up to, let's see, it's called Big Flame is Gonna Break My Heart in Two by Doris Wilson. Uh, those who like the show, I think you should leave with Tom uh, Tim Robinson from Netflix will recognize that track. We built this morning's playlist around it. Of course, if you've ever heard the big edition of The Heart, you'll certainly have heard many of these songs as well. Uh, this next one, my favorite big track, it's Big Iron, Marty Robbins, here on Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM. To the town of our free road, a stranger one fine day. Hardly spoke to folks around him, didn't have too much to say. No one dared to ask his business, no one dared to make a slip. The stranger there among them had a big iron on his hip, big iron on his hip. It was early in the morning when he rode into the town. He came riding from the south side, slowly looking all around. He's an outlaw, loose and running, came the whisper from each lip. And he's here to do some business with a big iron on his hip, big iron on his hip. In this town there lived an outlaw by the name of Texas Red. Many men had tried to take him, and that many men were dead. He was vicious and a killer, though a youth of 24, and the notches on his pistol numbered one in 19 more, one in 19 more. Now the stranger started talking, made it plain to folks around. Was an Arizona Ranger, wouldn't be too long in town. He came here to take an outlaw back alive or maybe dead. And he said it didn't matter, he was after Texas Red. After Texas Red. Wasn't long before the story was relayed to Texas Red. But the outlaw didn't worry, men that tried before were dead. Twenty men had tried to take him, twenty men had made a slip. Twenty-one would be the ranger with the big iron on his hip, big iron on his hip. The morning passed so quickly it was time for them to meet. It was 20 past 11 when they walked out in the street. Folks were watching from the windows, everybody held their breath. They knew this handsome ranger was about to meet his death, about to meet his death. There was 40 feet between them when they stopped to make their play. And the swiftness of the ranger is still talked about today. Texas red had not cleared leather for a bullet fairly ripped. And the ranger's aim was deadly with the big iron on his hip, big iron on his hip. It was over in a moment and the folks had gathered round. There before them lay the body of the outlaw on the ground. 
Oh, he might have went on living, but he made one fatal slip when he tried to match the ranger with the big iron on his hip. Big iron on his hip. Big iron, big iron. When he tried to match the ranger with the big iron on his hip. Big iron on his hip. When I mentioned I think you should leave, did I say with Tim Robbins? If I did... Uh, it's Tim Robinson. Tim Robbins is a fantastic actor. Uh, one of my favorite films is The Hudsucker Proxy with Mr. Robbins. This is the Lord of the Long Island music scene. Billy Joel moving from Big Iron to Big Shot from the 52nd Street record of 1978. Uh, Big Shot, Tom Shaudel joining us in just a couple moments for the Thoughtful Thursday segment. I'm Gianna Volpe, and you, whoever you are out there, you are awesome. You're listening to Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM, 88.3 on the FM dial throughout eastern Long Island and uh, coastal Connecticut, 96.9 in central and western Suffolk, of course, streaming online to wherever you are at WLIW.org slash radio.
Deep bound Billy Joel. We've got the Lumineers, Talking Heads, and the Kinks coming up in your listening future, but it is the bottom of the 9 o'clock hour on Thursday, just after midnight if you're listening to the replay, and that means it is time for our Thoughtful Thursday segment, underwritten by Green Hill Kitchen. Very excited about our first guest this morning, uh, with testimonials ranging from Nelson DeMille to Steve Vai and a hilarious dedication to Harley and Hawk noting grandkids are one's reward for not killings, killing one's kids. It was a true pleasure to read A Second Helping, Whining and Dining on Long Island, the literary sequel to Playing with Fire by Long Island's celebrity chef Tom Shaudel, my culinary boss on the catering scene over the past decade, whose deep dedication to the dish is only matched by his wit. Welcome to the heart, chef. Hello, how are you? Good Good morning, and thank you for being with us. Oh, pleasure. Pleasure's all mine. All right, so Second Helping opens with a horrible but hilarious scene at Amano in Mattituck featuring an intergenerational squabble, we'll call it. What happened that night, and were you there? I'm guessing not. Uh, I was actually in the <clears throat> and... Um what happened was we had a, a bunch of younger people, uh, I guess 30-somethings, come in. And, you know, uh, like I say in the book, they had that look on their face that younger people have when babysitters have temporarily liberated them from their children, you know. So they decided, they had like a 7 o'clock reservation. They came in at like a, a quarter after 6 and had a, you know, a pre, they were pre-gaming at the bar. They were, you know, drinking and, you know, having some wine or whatever. So by the time they sat down, it was like 7 o'clock, and they were kind of, you know, getting on the way to being well-oiled and, and about seven o'clock, this <clears throat> another group of people came in. I think it was six or eight of them, and they were older. They were in their seventies or whatever. Uh, to make a long story short, um, they didn't really, you know, uh, have anything at the bar before they sat down. And what was happening was, you know, because Amano is such a small room, you know, it can get kind of loud on on busy nights. And you know, the younger party was whooping it up pretty good, and you know, on their fifteenth bottle of wine or whatever they were doing. And you know, the other people were trying to get in the you know, kind of quiet down or complaining to the hostess. So finally one of the guys, uh, you know, uh, just couldn't take it anymore. And he whistles like, you know, uh, like he could whistle for his dog. And, you know, he screams, shut up, you know. And, and the other people were going, well, just lighten up. And I, I should kind of go back a little bit because when the host came over to the younger table and said, could you guys calm down a little bit, they said, well, who's complaining? And 
Postage was reticent to tell him, and finally said, you know, this, they're all complaining. So anyway, this guy bought everybody like a bottle of wine. It was really kind of a cool gesture. Really. I've never so seen that. Who could, uh, yeah, me either. It, was, uh, it restored my face and face <laughs> intoxicated, you know. So anyway, uh, you know, the old table didn't want the wine. They just wanted everybody to shut up. So anyway, there's one old lady who looked uh, kind of like um, – Oh, and I should remind you, we can't, we can't use any of the four-letter letter words on no, the No, no, I, I know that. <laughs> I figured. I have a radio I, show. I, 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 that's right. That's right. I, yeah. I figured, you know, just in case, I'll, I'll let you know. Yeah, no, it's 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 always a good move to warn people, especially myself. But yeah. anyway, yeah, <laughs> she gets up and she marches over and she gives the big F you and, you know, they're going back and forth. And it was just this whole thing got so out of control. It was like this squabble between, it was like the sharks and the jets on West Side Story. You yes. Know? And the F you and the F bombs are going back and forth. And, you know, just. I mean, coming from, you know, I, listen, I, you know, I grew up, um, I'm a street kid, so it's not like I'm shocked by the word, but, you know, when it comes out of the mouth of an 80-year-old grandma, you know, who looks like the mother of your 44th president or whatever it was. Right. It's, kind of nuts, you know? it's, it's something different. You know, and, and, oh, and yeah. I, I like that because it, it segues into the next question, which is I always love talking to chef restaurateurs that started as dishwashers. It's beautiful seeing a rise through the ranks of kitchen hierarchy and I absolutely loved your description of Shorty. Is Shorty still with us? Can you share a little bit about about him for those who haven't gotten a chance to read Second Helping yet? Sure. Shorty was uh, my first culinary mentor, uh, and I put the mentor in parentheses. He taught me a lot, and most of it had nothing to do with cooking. But um, I met Shorty when I was uh, just uh, just turned 16. Um, I probably not had quite gotten to 16. I was a dishwasher in this um, restaurant that I had, um, basically I was an aspiring guitar player and I, I kept trying to sound like Jimi Hendrix and I kept blowing up my amp and my father <laughs> said to me, if you think I'm giving you another dime, you idiot, you know, uh, there's no way, you know, so go get a job if you want a new amplifier. So I lied my way into this dishwasher's job because he was supposed to be 16 years old at the time. And I was there, I guess about, for about a month or two months or whatever, and uh, the, the original chef left and Shorty showed up and <laughs> Shorty, to, to describe him in a in a nutshell, it's probably unfair because he was maybe the, the the biggest character I've ever met in my life. Shorty was about five two or three, always wore a derby. He was an African American man. He was probably somewhere between thirty six and forty at the time because every time I asked him, he gave me a different number. And uh, he could drink, you know, more cheap vodka than anybody on the planet. Annihilate the English language like George Bush on crack. And um, he just he was just completely out of his mind. And and he always carried a gun. <laughs> Even in the kitchen. So first, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Because you never know when you defend yourself against a couple of waitresses and a busboy. You know? <laughs> right. So anyway, right. he he would he would he would put it in a locker room. Thank God. But anyway, so everybody was terrified of this lunatic, you know. And he was. He was completely out of his mind. And uh, because I had taken two years of high school Spanish and I kept showing up, he decided to promote me to his uh, his head trainer and prep guy. So Shorty and I kind of. Um, you know, became inseparable. We were inseparable for the three years that I was with him. Um, out every night, uh, you know, just craziness, absolute craziness. I mean, I see 16-year-old kids now, and, and they look like babies to me. And what I was doing when I was 16 was completely off the rails. You I know? can only imagine. So anyway, it was, yeah, I mean, you know, Shorty would drink two bottles of vodka while he was working all day and then go out and drink for five hours and then take ten shots before the cab showed up. And, and wait a minute, and he, did you that. say he wore a derby hat? Always. That is like, that's the definition of a character right there. You mentioned your. Oh, yeah. Co- and he, you know, Go ahead. 
you know, and he had one front tooth was missing, you know. So whenever he laughed, his, his shoulder would scrunch up, you know. And he had the missing tooth, and you couldn't help but laugh, you know, at him while you were laughing with him. But he was seriously dangerous. I mean, Shorty was completely nuts. I mean, <laughs> so is he I, with I us? Where, he was, where is Shorty I was now? Friend he had. Oh, Shorty has to be dead. I mean, I looked back at Shorty somewhere around 1973, and at that time he was probably 45. And like I say in the book, you know, uh, three bottles of vodka and no, four packs yeah. of cigarettes a day isn't really a good recipe for no. a centennial birthday. No, so not, a, not he at all. He would have been probably about, I think he would have been, now he'd be in his 90s if he was alive. But there's no way he could possibly be alive. So you, you mentioned, um, go ahead. Go ahead. You um, mentioned uh, Shorty obliterating the English language. Your command and love for the English language is right up my alley. And your parkway, driveway argument for asteroid and hemorrhoid had me cracking up at 5:30 in the morning by myself next to to my sleeping guy. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, your love for for words and uh, perhaps if you've got uh, something that you might be cooking up, uh, literarily speaking, uh, for the future? Well, I, I you know I had an English teacher when I was in ninth grade, Miss Sarah. Emily Sayre, her name is. She's a doctor now, and she's retired, and I still see her. Um, and she was one of those teachers that just wouldn't let you not participate. And I was a non-participation guy because most of the time I was out with Shorty, you know, till 3 in the morning. So you're um, sleeping. Tenth grade English had no appeal whatsoever, you know. Right. But she made me make up like a year's worth of work that I refused to do at the time. And it sparked a, a, a love of reading and writing in me that I didn't know I had. And... So I've been dabbling ever since. You know, I'm a voracious reader, but I've been dabbling in writing ever since. And I don't know. I just think you know, language is just you know the most interesting thing because it can describe you know if you're good at it. I'm I'm not, but I mean, there's guys that are real good at it. You know, I tell my granddaughter all the time. You know, you read a book, you can go to Hawaii, you can be over right. here, you can go into space. You know, it's it's just it opens up this whole world for you. You know, <clears throat> so that's kind of how it started and. You know, I started writing these little vignettes about crazy customers because they were funny, you know. And as far as the future goes, I mean, writing a book is it's like having a baby. It's difficult, you know. It's right. like, oh, my God. And then when you finally get it out there, it's like, whew, it's a relief, you know. You want to write another one? And I'm like, no, thanks, you know. <laughs> but I do, have this, I, I do have this idea for a novel. And um, it's really based on a friend of mine who's a, a – He's one of the most talented chefs I know. His name is Richard Allen, and he's from England. But he's nuts. He makes Gordon Ramsay look stable. You know, he's just got that kind of personality. And so he, he the, the main character is kind of an effigy of him. And the the crux of the thing is that you know he he runs into one of my crazy customers, can't take it anymore, and whacks her over the head with a plate. You know, she winds up hospitalized, and he winds up in jail, taking over the prison kitchen and turning the prison kitchen into this three star resort gig. You know, and so he's trying to get out. The whole plot revolves around him, you know, trying to be good and, and, and be on good behavior. So his time served is less, and everybody's trying to, you know, tick him off so he gets mad and his time gets extended because they don't want to lose him as the chef, you know. Right. So it's this whole push-me-pull-you thing about it. You I know? love but that. I, you know, I was, I was, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a fun idea. I was, t I was telling Nelson, you know, Nelson DeMille's a buddy of mine, and I was having dinner with him one night, and I'm telling him the whole story, and about three the way through it, I, I looked at him and I said, you know, you're having a pretty good career without my help. I'm <laughs> telling you what to write. No, it seems you're doing okay without me. And know? his son. Yeah. We just we saw uh, his son joining him at Author's Night because they both yeah. had new books out. 
you know, and it's funny because we're, we're talking a little bit about language and I'm thinking about how you love to play and how it's it's sort of like the same thing with music and, and how like you remind me of Kerry Carney, but in the kitchen. Like a Kerry Carney in the kitchen. He's a so way better guitar player. I would love to see you two play together one day. That's that is now one of my my dreams. Uh, before I let you go, Chef, uh, what has the response been to a second helping? I, I have to imagine that everyone out there is enjoying it as much as I did. I think so. I mean, you know, it's it's look, it's a fun read. It, it's not serious. It's it's meant to be entertaining. Um, you know, I'm not looking for Pulitzer prizes here. I'm just looking to you know give people a couple of laughs. Right. <clears throat> it's been the response has been great on Facebook. It's it's blown up a little bit. You know, I don't know what the sales are yet because I, you know it's quarterly stuff, so I have no idea. But um, it seems to be, and I mean, a lot of people have told me they've gotten it and read it, or have gotten it and going to read it. So we'll see. I don't get my own physical books until probably uh, the beginning of middle of September and at that point I'll be doing signings and things like that so and there's a there's a PR campaign that's going to come out probably very cool so, right, well we'll try to have you back ahead of your first signing uh, folks out there if you want to read a second helping I recommend you ask your local bookstore for it if they don't have it they'll probably be able to order it for you chef an honor and a pleasure as always uh, I'll see you around, if not uh, at a book signing, maybe at a, a catering gig uh, through Amano. Or the, Amano, it, it ha, it's like, what's what's the, the name of the, the catering company? It's something else. By hand. By, by hand catering. Well, uh, as Amano, Amano. Which ma matches perfectly. Uh, I have one more question before you go. Uh, sure. Because I had the same thing happen when I was a kid. I was also recommended to go into mortuary sciences. Uh, what, what do you think that's about? <clears throat> well, I was, I spent a lot of time with my guidance counselor because I was, uh, I was a rip and I, well, I was just, they threw me out all the time, you know, and I became very friendly with him. I, in fact, I still see him to this day. He's like 92. His name is Art Smolian, a great guy. And so we were sitting there in, in, in the guidance counselor's office and he said to me, have you thought about what you want to do after you get out of high school? I said, no. He goes, why don't you go into mortuary science? And I'm like, you mean like funeral policy? Yeah. <laughs> I said, why would I do that? He goes, well, you wear black all the time. I said, why don't you just become a guidance counselor because it doesn't seem all that hard. You know? Oh, my God. <laughs> so it sent me on the express train to cooking school. Because I never knew they existed. He told me, I told him I was working in a restaurant. I kind of like it. He goes, why don't you go to chef school? I said, well, what is that? You know? Oh, and wow. And so he told me about CIA and this. And then I went, you know, I wound up going up there. And Amen. This history, as they say. Yeah. Gu guidance counselors making a difference. I love to hear it. I'm Gianna Volpe. That's Chef Tom Shaudel. These are the Lumineers, and you, whoever you are out there, you're awesome. And you just heard the Thoughtful Thursday segment underwritten by Green Hill Kitchen right here on Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM. All the things you said to me, the manifest and destiny will all could go away right now And everyone was in the band And I was on another planet And you were all alone And you want to be a big shot You want to be the big man You want to hold a big gun You gotta have a quick hand be the big shot now 
All right, this might be a, a questionable decision, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. If you want to hear Tom Shaddell's radio show, it's Sundays at 9 a.m. on WHLI. It's called Playing With Fire. I'm Gianna Volpe. These are Talking Heads from the Naked Record. We're going to do a two-decade jump back in time uh, from the Naked Record to the Kinks are the Village Green Preservation Society record of 1968. From Big Daddy to Big Sky, right here on Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM.
Nine and a half minutes before the NPR news break. The Kinks on WLIWFM NPR Radio. Staying in the sky, Angus and Julia Stone's Big Jet Plane, Seeds of Love's Big White Bird, and Eddie Floyd, Big Bird. For Watch House's Big Men in the Sky, the NPR News Break coming up, and the local news update. I'm Gianna Volpe. This is Angus and Julia Stone, and you, whoever you are out there, you're awesome. And you're listening to WLIWFM, NPR Radio. Take it for a ride on a big jet plane. 
that track i'm actually going to be tucking eddie floyd and watch house in my back pocket so we can come out of the npr news break with blaze foley's sitting by the road record big cheeseburgers and good french fries these are seeds of love and gianna volpe and you whoever you are out there you're awesome and you know where you are on wli wfm
with Long Island Local News. I'm Gianna Volpe on WLIWFM. Up to 20 cannabis dispensaries could open on Long Island during the first round of retail licensing. Serena Triangle reports on Newsday.com that the state released uh, regional caps yesterday while outlining how applications for up to 150 conditional or temporary licenses will be evaluated. Regulators will authorize a maximum of 20 business run dispensaries on Long Island. These credentials will be reversed for successful business owners who have a marijuana-related conviction or are related to someone with one. Nationally, law enforcement officers arrested Black and Latino people for marijuana offenses and higher rates than white people, despite these groups using the substance at similar rates. When legalizing marijuana, state lawmakers took steps to prevent people with marijuana records from being undercut by larger businesses and to prioritize communities of color where lawmakers said enforcement was focused. The region could see additional dispensaries run by vocational nonprofits. The state Office of Cannabis Management, which crafts and implements marijuana policy, noted 13 or 14 conditional licenses may be granted to organizations outside of New York City that provide training to incarcerated people. To give people penalized by the prohibition of marijuana a leg up, the state launched a $200 million fund that will provide real estate and other assistance to conditional licensees. The state's construction financing team, the Dormitory Authority of the State of New York, will identify dispensary locations for these retailers. Just four Long Island towns will allow dispensaries and marijuana consumption lounges. Babylon, Brookhaven, Riverhead, and Southampton. Some localities within these towns have opted not to permit these establishments. Some New York municipalities may reverse course and allow dispensaries now that there's more clarity on how the state will handle legalization, according to David Falkowski, the owner of Open-Minded Organics in Bridgehampton. To give people penalized by the prohibition of marijuana leg up, as we mentioned, the state launched that $200 million fund that will provide real estate and other assistance to conditional licensees. Uh, Meanwhile, in Hampton Bays, hidden among the pages of a contract with a consulting firm hired to provide service in the furtherance of resurrecting the Hampton Bays downtown overlay district zoning code, is startlingly plain-spoken language promising to neutralize opponents. Interesting. Katie Merrill reports on 27East.com. And why am I not surprised it's Kitty that uncovered this? It's so hidden that Supervisor Jay Schneiderman, who signed the contract, and Town Land Management and Development Administrator Janice Scherer, who reviewed the contract, both claimed they didn't see the surprising statement when it was brought to their attention this past Tuesday morning. It was on the first page under the first heading of the proposal by the consulting firm Nelson Pope Voorhees, also known as NPV. The proposed scope of work incorporated into the contract lists as its first task community outreach and states, as we go through the process of meeting with the community and various stakeholders, we will be able to clarify any of the opposition's hot-button issues. We will seek to neutralize this by having them appear as traditional NIMBYs who consistently present misinformation to promote their own limited agenda and present a positive message through community leaders. The proposal estimates the cost of community outreach at $25,000 out of the over $200,000 it will be paid to redo work struck down in court last year. 
By Tuesday night, the Southampton Town Board voted to strike the offending passage from the contract with the firm. Apologies were offered by those involved. Those who missed the passage, beginning with Schneiderman, who said, I take responsibility, I'm sorry. At the meeting on Tuesday night, opponent Ray D'Angelo read the offending passage to the board. Quote, don't you people read these things before you sign them, he asked. Comparing the verbiage to an organized crime family contract, he said, quote, the whole tone is to shut us up and use our tax money to do it. And quote, a walk-on resolution crafted that afternoon and unanimously passed. Tuesday night amends the contract to exclude NPV from any public engagement component of the process and subtracts the $25,000 from the estimated cost of its involvement. The Hampton Bay Civic Association is hosting a community forum this coming Monday, August 29th, that will include an array of presentations related to the Hampton Bay's downtown overlay district plan. Looking at the weather here in Southampton ahead of tonight's Southampton Rotary event, night at the Rogers Mansion at 17 Meeting House Lane featuring world-class mentalist Kevin Nicholas, joining us at the bottom of the hour with Southampton History Museum board member Sean Denemy looking like a sunny Thursday with a high near what it is now, which is 83 degrees. Northwest wind around 6 miles per hour becoming southwest in the afternoon tonight. Party, partly cloudy with a low around 69 degrees. Southwest wind 3 to 6 miles per hour. We've got Joni Mitchell, David Schwartz, Gregory Allen, Isakoff, and Gene Knight on deck. But first, Blaze Foley. Big cheeseburgers and good french fries here on the heart of the East End. WLIWFM. I got an angel of warm with big brown eyes. Got friends in the country. No neckties, no big cheeseburgers and good french fries. Good goldfish, but the fish are all blind. Could go swimming if it ain't too deep. Ready to set and rest my feet. No, I ain't lazy because I don't like to sleep. Might just be lazy. I want to live in the city, have a telephone. Want to live in the country, throw my dog a bone. Ride on a spaceship, want to get lost. Mom still tell me about the penny cost. Ride a bicycle, but my ass gets sore. Sell a holy Bible from door to door. Used to be stupid, but it ain't no more. Might just be stupid.
You don't know what you've got till it's gone. They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. Late last night, I heard the screen door slam. And a big yellow taxi took away my old man. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? And now for our second polarizing television reference. This one goes out to all the Arrested Development fans out there.
walking the sidewalks covered in rain Love to just get out of some of your stories David Schwartz, head of Gregory Allen Isakoff, Gene Knight, Jimmy Dean, and Johnny Cash in the Tennessee Two, ahead of Dave Matthews Band and Doris Wilson. You get a little bit of everything right here on the Heart of the East End on Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM. World-class mentalist Kevin Nicholas joining us in just five minutes with Sean Denemy of the Southampton History Museum.
John. Every morning at the mine, you could see him arrive. He stood six foot six and weighed 245, kind of broad at the shoulder and narrow at the hip. And everybody knew you didn't give no lip to Big John. Big John. Big Bad John, Big John. Nobody seemed to know where John called home. He just drifted into town and stayed all alone. He didn't say much. He kind of quiet and shy. And if you spoke at all, you just said hi to Big John. Somebody said he came from New Orleans where he got in a fight over a Cajun queen and a crashing blow from a huge right hand sent a Louisiana fella to the promised land, Big John. Big John. Big John. Big Bad John. Big John. Then came the day at the bottom of the mine when a timber cracked and men started crying. Miners were praying and hearts beat fast and everybody thought that they'd breathe their last, except John. Through the dust and the smoke of this man-made hell walked a giant of a man that the miners knew well, grabbed a sagging timber and gave out with a groan and like a giant oak tree just stood there alone, Big John. Big John. Big Bad John, Big John. And with all of his strength, he gave a mighty shove. Then a miner yelled out, there's a light up above. And 20 men scrambled from a would-be grave. Now there's only one left down there to save Big John. With Jackson Timbers, they started back down. Then came that rumble way down in the ground. And the smoke and gas belched out of that mine. Everybody knew it was the end of the line for Big John. Big John. Big John. Big Bad John. Big John. Now, they never reopened that worthless pit. They just placed a marble stand in front of it. These few words are written on that stand. At the bottom of this mine lies a big... Big man, Big John. <laughs> Big John, Big John, Big Bad John. Moving from Big Bad John to Big Bad Sean Denemy, joining us with world-class mentalist Kevin Nicholas at the bottom of the hour on Thursday. Uh, it's after 1 if you're listening to the replay. Otherwise, it is 10.26 this segment underwritten by William Riss Gallery. Good morning, Sean Denemy. Good morning. Welcome to and the... Thank you for having me on. Oh, thank you for, uh, for being with us. And, and just a note for folks, uh, we are fellow uh, members of the Southampton Rotary Club, which is where this came onto my uh, radar. But you're not only a Rotary member, you're also a board member at the Southampton History Museum. Am I right? That's correct. So, so tell us how this event uh, came to be and uh, what folks can expect tonight. Well, the museum represents the, the very heart of the community and its historical significance, um, and it's something that needs to be preserved. There's about 13 buildings, all inclusively in three separate locations. Uh, the intent is to 
raise money not for operating expenses, but for capital expenses. And every investment that we do make now to preserve the integrity of the structures for the next 10 to 20 years. So that's, that's my role in terms of having an event at the museum. Uh, we bookend uh, the Southampton Cultural Center on one side on Lake Aguam, and in between is Southampton Art Center and the Peter Marino Art uh, Gallery. So we really have a cultural alley that um, we're trying to maintain and improve and attract more folks from the community as well as outside the community. Right. I remember we spoke off the air just about the Halsey House alone and the the work that needs to be done to that structure, but you said that doesn't even begin to touch uh, the other structures. What else uh, needs to be helped? Well, we, we also own Conscience Point, a portion of Conscience Point, um, which is a little tributary that goes out where there's... Um, uh, they uh, have an oyster farm. We have to. We're looking at maintaining that now and beautifying that as well. Uh, in addition to Halsey House, we own the Silver Pelletro shop in town. It's where actually uh, silver is actually being created and, and jewelry made. And I understand that there's another structure that will be coming our way. Um, was formerly a Mason House, the Gideon House, I think it's called. Um, and that's that's something that also has not been looked at for quite some time. So will will this event tonight, uh, will the money go toward helping out the Rogers Mansion and the other structures uh, at the Southampton History Museum property? Yes, well, it's, uh, it's also an awareness um, for the community. Uh, we expect to have a pretty good crowd. We have boards up to show what we're doing, what we have done, and it's more of an eye awakening as to where we are, where we're going, and what we'll look like next year. Um, initially, it was all about the grounds. Uh, the grounds are very critical in terms of um, curb appeal when people are walking by, um, and we expect that to be done probably by this November, and then the, uh, the following year start working on the, the uh, Rogers Mansion itself. Fantastic. All right, so so let's talk about what folks can expect at 5.30 tonight. I think the, uh, the fun is going to be getting started at 17 Meeting House Lane. Well, I, I formerly come from the entertainment business, and, and uh, when I found out about Kevin Nicholas and his skills, um, I thought he'd be an incredible attraction for our event. Um, Kevin is a uh, um, class mentalist. Uh, he's got an incredible track record, and we're looking at having an event that has something a little bit different than what the traditional events have. Um, and, in fact, we have a substantial amount of media showing up as well. So I think this is something that can get us some exposure, knowledge about what we're doing, where we're going for the museum, and hopefully a fun event. And, and there's going to be a caricature artist there. I've always kind of uh, wanted to get a caricature done, so I'm, I'm psyched about that too. But Kevin, thank you for joining us. I'm, I'm really grateful to have you on because I know uh, speaking to Alan Kronzik, who is another, uh, well, he's a magician in the area, and he, I remember him talking a little bit about mentalism. Is that a realm of, of magic, as it were? Can you explain a little bit to folks who don't know what mentalism is, what it is? Yeah, mentalism really has taken um, a lot of spotlight um, thanks to, like, America's Got Talent. And also, I think the television show, The Mentalist, kind of hyped it up as the word and became more popular. So similar to um, the 
music industry, you know, you have different genres. You have hip hop, you have country, and both are two, you know, different, although different styles, they're all part of the same genre, in a sense, the genre of entertainment in our art form. And for me, I mean, I kind of mix the two together. So I mix both magic, close up, everything from card tricks to mentalism side of things where it's more mind reading and you know tonight you'll see me bending forks or in a sense have kind of making uh predicting maybe somebody's maiden you know mother's maiden name stuff like that which definitely goes much deeper than i guess you could say pick a card right definitely i mean it, can you talk a little bit about your origins i always like hearing uh, the origin story behind a uh, magician, whether they be a, a mentalist or, or close-up ma magician. Uh, how did this start for you? I was 13, and I saw an infomercial. And I somehow convinced, I believe, my mom to buy the magic set. And I learned it. I learned, like, all the tricks very quickly. And... She kind of realized I had a I had a strong passion for it. I was, and um, I was an athlete and for a while, and I played sports. But for some reason, why I kind of just took a hold of this, and it became a lot more um, addictive for me. And so that, and then I did it all throughout high school, college, and then right around the time I graduated school, I said, well, "Let me take a shot at this," and that was in 2009, and it's really the only career I've had since then. Um, but it's, it's great, though, because I have a very long history in Southampton. Um, and for me, living on Long Island, um, I've been out in Southampton for I live both up island and also uh, spend time with my father in Montauk. Um, I've been performing in Southampton probably for 10-plus years. So it was very exciting to to be a part of this. So wait a minute, you grew up on the island? I did. I grew up in Oceanside, Long Island, and uh, I then went to school here at Adelphi, and then I have roots out in Montauk. My father's a charter boat captain out there, and so for me, you know, the Hamptons and East End is very, you know, very, very close to me in my heart. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if, you're, if your dad's a chowder boat captain, uh, this definitely is a special place for you. Uh, do you remember some of your early memories going out there? Um, I would say, well, I could actually, going back to Southampton, I remember walking on Main Street with a deck of cards, and I think, I don't know what happened, but I remember before I knew it, I was performing at one of the restaurants on Main Street just by somebody asking if I was a magician and sort of trick. And I think I got my first job on Main Street at 75 Main. That's amazing. All right. Well, yeah. yeah. We're, we're happy. We're excited to have you back tonight. All right. So so 530 to um, what is it? When are, when are things wrapping up around 8 o'clock, Sean? 8, 8 p.m. All right. Well, and if, Kevin is supposed to start roughly around 6 p.m. Uh, uh, yep. And I'll be walking around and people will be whenever you hear a crowd or people screaming in the good way. 
That's we're right. <laughs> we're all about <laughs> it. Um, it, it. Before before I let you guys go, Kevin, can you talk a little bit about uh, uh, getting into to mentalism itself? What what was the appeal for you? Yeah. And and it's got to be it's got to be in some ways uh, a bit more challenging. I mean, how do you how do you really uh, find yourself getting into the minds of people? You learn that mentalism is just – it has something more of a personalized experience behind it. So you start learning about people more. People, you're, you're asking people very personalized questions sometimes, and so it also – so to get into stuff like that, you just start learning about people, and then you start learning a trick or an effect, however you want to put it, and you say, wow – there's something deeper. This this whole it, people don't look at it like a trick. Sometimes it bridges the gap between your audience thinking, "Do you have real powers, or right. is this just a trick?" And it, that connection and that emotional experience that somebody gets, you start realizing, "Okay, I like this experience more." And then that's how you know you start going deeper into you know finding out more about this this genre of magic i guess you could say from sleight of hand to sleight of mind tonight a night at the rogers mansion starting at 5 30 you can find out more information and get tickets at southamptonhistory.org i'm gianna volpe that was kevin nicholas and sean denemy and this was the hot sights and sounds segment underwritten by william riss gallery moving ahead johnny cash and the tennessee two we've got dave matthews band and Doris Wilson on deck before somersaults. And you're listening to Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM. Now I taught the weeping willow how to cry. And I showed the clouds how to cover up a clear blue sky. And the tears that I cried for that woman are gonna flood you, big river, and I'm gonna sit right here until I die. I met her accidentally in St. Paul, Minnesota, and it tore me up every time I heard her drawl, Southern drawl. Then I heard my dream went back downstream, cavorting in Davenport, and I followed you, big river, when you called. St. Louis, later on down the river. A freighter said she's been here, but she's gone, boy, she's gone. I found her trail in Memphis, but she just walked up the bluff. She raised a few eyebrows, and then she went on down alone. Now won't you bat it down by back queen, roll it on. Take that woman on down to New Orleans, New Orleans. Go on, I my blues down in a gulf. She loves you, Big River, more than me.
weeping willow how to cry, cry, cry. And I showed the clouds how to cover up a clear blue sky. And the tears that I cried for that woman are gonna flood you, big river. And I'm gonna sit right here until I die. If you're finding uh, this playlist on the WLIWFM website, WLIW.org slash radio, this next track you're going to find is listed uh, from the Busted Stuff record of 2002, Big Eyed Fish. But if you're listening to the live show, the replay, or the uh, web stream on the WLIWFM website, why, you're in luck. You're getting the version from the Lily White Sessions the unreleased record uh, from Dave Matthews' band, Big Eyed Fish, right here on WLIWFM. Story of a man who decided not to breathe, turned red, purple, then blue, colorful and deep. How his friends begged, well, he would not concede, and now he's dead. You see, cause everybody knows you got to breathe. But oh God, under the weight of life, things seem brighter on the other side. Lighter on the other side. in his tree one day decided to climb down to run off to the city look at him now tired and drunk living in the street as good as dead you see a monkey should know stay up your tree but oh
Love Me Some Lily White Sessions, Dave Matthews Band, Big Eyed Fish, here on Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM. Here it is. It's the track I built this whole playlist around. Big Flame is going to break my heart in two. Uh, Doris Wilson uh, from the segues in the I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson show found on the Netflix. Very polarizing. Crude is a good word for it. But I'm a fan. Bessie Smith up next. Somersault, Phineas, and Hate Violet leading you into the NPR news break at the top of the hour here on The Heart.
Safety first. Somersault. This is the Driving to Hawaii EP of 2014 on WLIWFM.
Leading you into the NPR news break at the top of the hour with Phineas and Hey Violet. It's Break My Heart Again and Break My Heart on WLIWFM. Hey you, I'm just now leaving. Can I come around later on this evening? Or do you need time? Yes, of course, that's fine. Hey, you, good morning. I'm sure you're busy now. Why else would you ignore me? so blue and you still breathing won't you tell me if you find that deeper meaning do you think i've gone blind i know it's not the truth when you say i'm fine so go ahead and break my heart again leave me wondering why the hell i ever let you in are you the definition of insanity or am i or it must be nice to love someone who lets you break them twice don't pretend that i'm the instigator you are the one but you were born to say goodbye kissed me half a decade later that same perfume those same sad eyes go ahead and break my heart again leave me wondering why the hell i ever let you in are you the definition of insanity or am i must be nice to love someone who lets you break them twice. I'm fine. The hallmark of someone who is, of course, not fine. 
Deep bow to our guests this morning, Tom Shaudel, Kevin Nicholas, and Sean Denemy, as well as our underwriters, Green Hill Kitchen and William Riss Gallery, with a tip of the hat ahead of William Riss's uh, opening reception of an artful affair tonight. I'm Gianna Volpe. This is Hey Violet, and you, whoever you are out there, you're awesome, and you're listening to WLIWFM. You're listening to W.